Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Inatech and Tchotchkes from Office Space. Work of Fiction Sizzik, here with my colleagues, Dr. Kim Perkins and Jane Garza. We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools they, and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. So today we're going to be talking about office space, and I'm going to ask Kim to give us a quick summary in case you're one of the few people who hasn't seen this cult film. Yeah, well, it's been, what, 20 years? So what's your, why haven't you seen oh, this already? 1999, 1999 was 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago. That's depressing. Pete Gibbons is a software engineer and office drone, mindlessly showing up to his bland office until he dies. Until one day, when he goes under hypnosis and doesn't come out, suddenly his total indifference gives him a new lease on life, and he recruits his colleagues in a scheme to get payback from the company. All right. So first of all, I wanted to ask you guys, this is a cult film. This is the number one movie that people reference uh, when we go into a company, right? We're consultants, so like we've we've heard basically every quote from this movie. So I'm really just curious to hear what did you think about it 20 years on? Mm. Yeah, we we basically are Bob and Bob to people who don't know consultants. <laughs> um, I was surprised by how well it held up. I think there were certain things where I was like, oh, that's not great. <laughs> like the most of the women don't play the best roles in the movie, but aside, aside from that, I thought it was funny and held up really well and was like well made personally. Yeah, yeah, me too. I thought it was well made. I, I was surprised how much it really seems to have influenced our culture and the way we think about a lot of yeah. these things. It had a really specific viewpoint. It had a lot of catchphrases that have really become part of the lexicon. Um, so that, I'm actually really curious. Yeah. How do you think it has influenced culture in the last 20 years? Well, now when you say, if you do that, that'd be great. I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around nine, that would be great. Okay. Then, yes, then everybody gets that little smile like you just got. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Uh, no, but like I, I was actually doing a lot of research. So the, the infamous scene where they're like beating up the printer, where mm -hmm. they're destroying the printer, um, that has been parodied in multiple uh, forms of media, including Family Guy. Um, so yeah, I was just, I was just curious, like how else yeah. do you think it's, how else do you think it's affected culture? Hmm. Well, I think the way that they talk about pieces of flair, it's like a really good way of, uh, summarizing that feeling that you get when a company is trying to force you into like forced fun, basically. Okay. 15 is the minimum. Okay. Oh, okay. Now, you know, it's up to you whether or not you want to just do the bare minimum or, uh, well, like Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today, okay? 
a terrific smile. Oh, and I think that's stuck with our culture and we're very wary of it. I don't know if it's because of office space, but I just think they did a really good job of like showing that on screen. No. So to your point, it actually did impact culture in that TGI Fridays stopped using flair because of this film. Amazing. We shamed TGI Friday. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Like, it, it became such a joke. Essentially, like people would go into the TGI Fridays apparently and say, like, uh, how many pieces yeah, of flair like, are that, you wearing? Is that thirty-seven pieces mm. of flair? And so that actually prevented them. Um, and I want to say it was the director who said he felt like he made life a little bit better because of of this. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think so. The the swing line stapler. Also, the the famous red stapler. So they mm-hmm. really didn't make that in red, and now it has become oh. an actual thing that you can buy. It's Milton's red stapler. That's hilarious. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So it has. It, it's kind of funny that a that a kind of cult film, which didn't do so well yeah. when it first came out, has actually had a real impact on uh, on how we work. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Um, so wanted to dive in. Basically, the the key theme that really stuck out for me was was purpose and meaning at work. Uh, this film is all about how empty and meaningless and boring and dull Peter, the main character's life is. He just files, you know, TPS reports all day. Oh, right. Just TPS reports, by the way, that has become a thing in culture because people have now talked about TPS reports as being any meaningless bureaucracy oh, thing fun. that you have to file as, you know, a TPS report now. So that, yeah. has entered the, that has entered the lexicon. Yeah. You apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS report. Yeah. And apparently it stands for like the the project sheets or something like that. It's <laughs> that's pretty generic. Yeah, no, but it's it comes from a comes from a full term. Um, so you know, Peter and his coworkers Samir and Michael Bolton, um, they all absolutely despise their jobs, right? They, they absolutely hate it. Um, and so I wanted to just sort of open it up to a conversation about why. Why do they hate their jobs? What is wrong with the way that we work now? Mm. So, I, so one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is uh, metaphors of organizations. So if we, you know, organizations are can be seen through a lot of different metaphors, and we're kind of coming away from a very mechanistic view from the 20th century and earlier of the, you know, orga- of organizations as machines where you're a cog in the machine and you are supposed to do your perform your one function and if you're not doing that that well then they might replace you with a different cog right but then this in this film we're really to me what sticks out is the alienation mm-hmm. uh, then in that people are not being human to each other being very passive aggressive to each other there's like a coded language and to me this looks like um you know Gareth Morgan's idea of organizations as psychic prisons Oh, right. That's true. Who's who's Gareth Morgan? Gareth Morgan is one of the main thinkers in organizational theory. We had a whole class devoted practically to his work in my while I was doing my PhD. Mm. And um, so he had about 10 different uh, metaphors for organizations. But one of them was his psychic prisons. And the idea here is that um, the culture of an organization by nature restrains people's behavior and rarefies it into this completely other thing, which then it's like a rut that people are get, get stuck on mm. and in and that they can't get out of. 
And you can see that both in the the extremely passive aggressive culture that they have developed here, which you know comes directly out of that bureaucracy, out of that idea that people are bound by all the rules. And if you don't put your cover sheet on your TPS report, then eight different bosses <laughs> are going to tell you that you didn't because you weren't being a good little cog. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's what I'm thinking about is the way that that image of organizations as um, having such a dominant specific culture that they keep you from thinking differently. And the thing the thing about it affecting behavior is really visible, too, with Milton. Um, I think like the majority of the movie, he's trying to regain any little bit of control he can. He's like, they, they tried to take away my red stapler. And no, I kept, I held on to it. And then they keep trying to move his desk. And he's like under his breath trying to hold on to that last grasp of control. I, I, I told Bill that if, if Sandra's going to listen to her headphones while she's, while she's falling, then I should be able to listen to the radio while I'm collating. Uh-huh. So I don't see why okay. I should have to turn down the radio because yeah, all right. okay. I enjoy listening or even just his radio he's like i was led to believe that if i kept it low from hours nine to ten then i could listen to it and he like really fights for that little bit of control but you would imagine like in his regular day-to-day life he's probably not so obsessed with those little uh, opportunities for control i'm getting a head shake from paula because i just hit my microphone speaking of control yeah um but anyway i just thought that was a really interesting way of showing the effect that a lack of autonomy has on someone too Mm. and that feeling of loss of control just the, the setting is also very uh, control-focused, right? It's it's an endless cubicle farm. It's bland and gray, and they're all wearing sort of like halfway between suits and business casual. Mm. It's not really one or the other. Mm. It's, it's just a really soulless, and it looks like it's anywhere, right? It's some random office park in mid-America, it feels yeah. like. Yeah. yeah. And this was before business casual was really a thing. Was there a before business casual? <laughs> <laughs> so it would, you know, in the in the nineties, people still wore, you know, sort of dressed in office wear mm. as a matter of course. And so mm. we we're used to going into a lot of tech companies where, you know, if people are wearing shoes, that's a good day. And that's, um, yeah, this is so. We have a lot of people in very soulless little short sleeves with ties and things like that. Was you know, having been an adult in the nineties, I'm just saying this is a thing. Yeah, uh, I was. I happened to find in my research for this a uh, a recording. Uh, it was a retrospective from the directors and some of the actors, and he said that Pete, again the main character, he thinks he's in Fight Club. Like, this is his Fight Club movie. Like, when he knocks down the cubicles so he can get a window view, and when he is, like, wearing a uh, a bathrobe, and when he, you know, he's he's hacking into the system, like, he thinks that he is sticking it to the man. I love that, because I was thinking about Fight Club, which we have talked about on this podcast in season one, um, throughout this movie, because they were made at the same time. Yeah, I know it's it's ridiculous, but 1999. What a year for movies! Seminal year. <laughs> but that it, that it was the same sense of alienation, and that was the I was I that part about I grew up being told that if I find like my special thing to do, then work will be fun, and I'll follow my bliss, and I will never have a and you know we're, that's not that far off from Fight Club's idea that we're all yeah. going to be rock stars. You know, it's still the same sort of bait and switch feeling. Yeah. That yeah. I that I know my as a Gen X person is definitely something that is near and dear to our hearts. I don't know how that is for everybody else. Yeah, I think part of it is already is also summed up in the conversation that Peter has with the two consultants, Bob and Bob. 
And he tells them at one point, he was just like telling, he's very honest about his lack of motivation. He's like, I come in 15 minutes late. I probably do 15 minutes of work the whole week. And when they keep asking why, he finally says, well, if your only motivation is the fear of losing your job, then you're really just going to do the bare minimum to keep your job. Yeah. And I think that's a good summary for like how everyone is just kind of like getting by as much as they can. Yeah, absolutely. And then, but then it's kind of a dance because the more people do that, then the more people come in and feel that they have to be very controlly. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why he has eight bosses saying, not just like, hey, make sure that you do the cover letter on the TPS report next time, but like, did you get the memo? Because if you didn't, then you're kind of a defective cog and we're worried that you're going to keep doing this <laughs> right. as right. opposed to just a regular human. Uh, do it next time and we'll be fine. I know, but did you get the memo? Because <laughs> we can, we'll resend it to you. We'll get you another copy. Just in case you didn't get it. Um, and so I'm just curious to extrapolate from that. Obviously, again, this was 20 years ago. But how do you guys see this being applied in the real world? Oh, there's still lots of places like that. You know, I mean, they okay, they probably don't have dial up. <laughs> they were using floppies, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, they still use floppies in this film. I was like, oh, 20 years ago. But there's still a lot of places that are very command and control and that have that kind of dialectic between we are here just phoning it in and we're going to get away with every possible bit of shiftlessness that we can get away with uh, versus a management that is there to control and make sure that the cogs are behaving the way they're supposed to behave. And that's a, that that um, that tension is inherent in a lot of organizations still. I know I, I did some guest lecturing at Chafee College, uh, which I love, by the way, because this, this is a community... Um, it's a community college in the Los Angeles area, and people, by and large, are really trying to get a college education so that they can get better jobs than they are than they have now. And they often are like managers at some very command and control, terrible places to work, you know. And I'm I remember always trying trying to instill in them, don't worry, it doesn't mean that all business is like this. There's there are different ways to run a company. There's different ways mm-hmm. that work life may be for you. Um, at this point. So why are companies still command and control? Is it a bad thing? Are there are there areas where you still do want more of a command and control framework? I think they're command and control because we haven't found a better way to do it yet. I mean, that's my, that is my hope. Um, a lot of, uh, I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about call centers. I'm thinking about places where you have to have a lot of bodies on the ground, but you're expecting a lot of turnover. And so you're... Um, either because margins are so low that you just can't pay very much. You know, a lot of retail is like this. And so you're really thinking about the role of, of the it's a cog in the machine metaphor as opposed to what do you want to bring to this um, situation in order to make it better? You just like, look, just hit these five marks and we're fine. And then you can you can complain and be as sarcastic as you want and do all the th- different little things that you wouldn't see if you can get away with, you know, <laughs> and really we don't care that much. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's that's very soulless. I mean, really, what what Peter is looking for in this movie, I think, is that he he that lack of meaning is driving him crazy. Um, so that's that is a bargain that people made, you know, from the front lines of the factories, and that's one that's a lot of people are still playing out. Yeah, and if you look at engagement stats. Right. That's that's probably one of the most referenced statistics in our field is how many people are engaged at your workplace. 
And it's been pretty consistent ever since it has been measured. Something like 70% of people are disengaged at work, right? Yeah, yeah. And that though, so that means, of course, engagement at work in, in the event you've been under a rock for a while and don't know what that is. That means <laughs> that you are um, feeling like this is a good use of your time, like this is a good use of your abilities, you're looking for ways to contribute. Um, and you are, oops, now I hit my microphone. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> going around. Ah. Um, don't take it out on the mics. <laughs> I'm taking out my alienation in the workforce on the mics. Um, so, you know, and if you're disengaged, then then you're, it could be either because you have a lot of, you have so much work to do that you've really stopped caring and you're on your way to burnout, or it could be that this is really boring and sort of beneath your abilities or doesn't use your strengths the way that you would like to, um, or that you feel that it has a, an outcome that is not something that you want to contribute to. So let's take a look at hopefully the reverse of that, which is what we're encouraging companies to do, which is engagement, right? Kim, I think you just mentioned that Peter's pretty well checked out in his day-to-day job. Doesn't really care. Jane, you were saying he does 15 minutes of actual work in a given week. But there's a real change when suddenly he decides that he wants to essentially scam the business out of mo- of out of money. And the way this works is they're going to install a virus that essentially takes, you know, a, a percentage, like a, a penny essentially out of each transaction and it deposits in, in their account. And so he's going to get some coworkers in on this and they're all going to get rich and stick it to the man, be able to retire in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm really just curious about uh, one, why you think that is, right? Like what what shifts that suddenly they're so engaged in stealing money from their company? Is it just revenge? Um, and then two, what can companies learn from this, right? How do you actually shift that mindset from I'm just a cog in a machine to I am an active person in the work that I do? So we, we tend to look at Google's study, the Aristotle Project, quite a bit. And one of the biggest factors to high-performing teams is impact. Uh, so being able to see the work that you do and how it actually impacts the end um, outcome. And I think that's partly what engages them is they if they work harder, if they come in on the weekend, they're not getting more money, right? Maybe that helps the company, but it doesn't really do anything for them. But with this side project, that money is literally going into their pockets. And so it's hard not to be engaged when you see that impact immediately. Um, of course, you can't promise that to every employee, $300,000, but you can find some way to connect the dots between what they do and how that ultimately affects the outside world, your customers, your product, etc. Do you think it's just about money, though? No, no, no. I feel like impact can be any. Yeah, that's what I mean. So it could be customer impact. It could be product impact. I think it's just knowing that the work that you're doing eight hours a day ultimately has an effect on the thing that the company is putting out. Yeah. yeah. I also, oh, sorry, go um, ahead. Yeah, I have, um, you know, that's absolutely right about impact because that is the number one thing people want to see is that they're, they're, they're moving forward, they're achieving something, they're achieving something for other people, um, hopefully for themselves too. But, you know, I think that also they gave them a good, interesting problem to solve. Yeah. And I mean, they found mm. themselves an interesting problem to solve. One that they cared a lot about. And I guess I've been thinking a lot about prioritization this year. And one of the things that in one of the books I read about prioritization, sadly, I can't remember the author right this second, but that the idea was, what can you do that will make your life easier in the future? So it's fine and good to care about outcomes, but there was no way that these guys were ever going to care about outcomes for Inatech customers. That was just Mm -hmm. not going to happen because that nobody was about that in this. This was not a moral 
crusade to do anything good for the customers, right? They're not customer focused. So in, in a sense, they have an interesting problem of like, they do care about the, their customers for this challenge because it's themselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's each other just as much as themselves there. It's like, like let's try to build something cool. Mm -hmm. And again, we talk about Fight Club in the same thing, but it, it is in a sense that is an, uh, what these guys also made kind of a startup. It just mm -hmm. was one with a very quick exit strategy. It ended up not being a very good exit <laughs> strategy in the end. Uh, but yeah, I really do. I do think it is that that sense of challenge of that of like, are we going to get away with it? Mm -hmm. Right. And and even feeling like we are smarter than the rest of the company. Like we, you know, we, we figured out the loophole. I think money is really secondary to do what these guys want. I don't actually think they need a lot of money. I mean, Peter really just wants to sit and do nothing, which I identify <laughs> with deeply. <laughs> that day when he's just in his bed, mm -hmm. staring at the wall, not moving, I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm actually really curious. Again, this is more of a philosophical level, but uh, do you guys think that work is important? Like, this is this is actually something we talk about at Nobel a lot. I, mm. Our whole, I want to say, founding statement is that work is meaningful and that everybody should have the the ability right the the right to engage in work that they find fulfilling that's the that's the end goal you know that's our 100 year statement yeah and so i'm wondering if you guys like where you fall personally do you think that work is necessary to a satisfying and fulfilling life or are you like peter you're like no i could really just peace out for a little bit <laughs> i mean Look, everyone's different. I definitely could not live a life without some version of work. But in in the reality where I would have a billion dollars, that would be more like an, some interesting version of creative problem solving. Like I don't I don't know if I would be doing the exact same thing I'm doing right now, but it would be some version of constantly using my brain in a creative way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of times you hear from people who when they retire that they're like, yay, I'm going to do nothing. And I've, I've heard that people for the first six months, they just catch up on sleep <laughs> until everybody gets actually really caught up. And then they're like, okay, now I need a problem mm. to go with. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, a, it's really, it's, it's kind of a hard problem in psychology, the interplay of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Because intrinsic motivation is you do something because you want to do it. It has inherent value. And extrinsic means you do it to get the reward. And so as companies have been trying to get people to be more intrinsically motivated, which is like all of those lame attempts in this movie, which were like, what do you think, what would you think of somebody who only wears 17 pieces of flair? You know, and that's an attempt to get them to connect with the issue, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the middle finger is the right response on that. <laughs> but what they're, um, you know, trying to do is get, find people to make connections to your work. And I think that if you don't have connections to your work, you have to make them for yourself, but nobody can really tell you what those ought to be because it often backfires if people, when people are trying to lead you to a specific meaning and motivation, then it ends up, you can really feel the manipulation. And again, the psychic prison comes back. Mm -hmm. I wanted to come back to that point, actually, this idea of making you feel something that you don't feel right. So uh, the term emotional labor has been used a lot in, I would say, popular culture today. I think that it has taken on a lot of different meanings. As popular terms do. Yeah, there's 
Oh, that's terrible. I can't just say something and it's that word forever. Um, and so I was wondering if one of you has like a, I'm looking at Kim really. <laughs> Kim, do you have a more official definition of emotional labor as it was originally used? Yeah, the original idea on emotional labor was that you are part, managing your own emotions is part of the work you do. So, you know, when Jennifer Aniston flips out and flips off her boss, uh, not doing that, even though you completely feel like doing that, is emotional labor. And so there's a certain amount of, it, it comes out of the service industries where they first were, were studying this because, you know, you're in a call center, or you're a waitress, and you have to make, um, not have your emotions all over your face. But there is an element of that in leadership as well, where yeah. you have, to, where you can't, you, you really can't just react from the hip all the time, or you will um, not be doing right by your direct reports. So what happens to you when you are performing this emotional labor? Like, what are the trade-offs that you make? Well, it tends to increase stress levels. It increases levels of, um, uh, it increases levels of alienation. You don't feel like your authentic self. Mm -hmm. And so people tend to either erupt later or take it out in other ways, or their blood pressure goes up and they have health effects. So all, that, all of that restraining of self has a, um, it has a big impact. And in fact, it's even been considered that that, that emotional labor in dealing with uh, when you're on the, the end of racism, when you're trying to deal with that um, people being racist or sexist toward you all the time and you can't tell them off because they have more power than you, is part of why they think that um, you know black people in America, for example, have shorter lifespans and less health than uh, white people. Wow. Well, that's that took a turn. Yeah. Wow. I thought we were just talking about office space. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying it's a big deal of having to restrain your natural reactions. It's a big deal. Yeah. So, I mean, we see this in the movie as, you know, 37 pieces of flair as opposed mm -hmm. to 15 pieces of flair. But even that, right, like the company is trying to get Jennifer Aniston's character to react to portray herself in a way that she doesn't necessarily feel like, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is that question of how much, what right do companies have to expect emotional labor from you? Like how much should companies actually require from you? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's a moving target. But one of, um, you know, there, there are, one of the things that really stuck out to me about this movie was how much everybody is hiding behind the bubble wrap of corporate language all the time. You know, so I want you to go ahead and do that thing, you know, with all of these softening words mm -hmm. in there and kind ofs and things like that. When um, and that's really that that's its own performative. That's its own performance in itself. Depressing. It is. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to your question, I think it there's got to be some sort of a balance. I think companies will always ask for that potentially from their employees, especially from their leaders. I think there's emotional labor there, but there's got to be the balance on the other end, meaning like employees need to fight for the the boundaries that they need in emotional labor and not say yes to more than they can take on too. So let's say you are a leader at Tchotchkes. Or you are a leader at Inatech, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have to manage your own emotions. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, you also do want to encourage higher performance from your team members. So what's a way that you can do this in a way that is, I don't want to say manipulative, 
ultimately it is like that's that's what you're doing you're trying to get somebody to do something you want Um, but what's a more I would say authentic or humane way that you can get people to wear more flair or to wear those Hawaiian shirts right be more of a quote-unquote team player I mean one thing that comes to mind for me is involving people in like the problem solving process so that rather than saying you need to wear more flair so that you show a happier face saying we're finding that like we need to be more cheerful as a as a team at tchotchkes let's say how would you guys like to approach that like what would you like to do about that what could we try that's a really good one i think that engagement is is the way to get around some of that being told because nobody wants to be told and nobody wants to be told that they're not that you know this is this is goes comes back to a lot of things you don't want to be told to smile and mm-hmm. yet we often have to smile yeah and this goes to a lot of the stuff that we like a lot of the research that we do around change and the feeling that people have when you try to tell them what to do it's like that loss of autonomy and control but involving them in the solution and asking how would we go about solving this problem at least gives them an option a or b to get to that ultimate solution and i think it's really important to think about what metrics you're really using because a lot of people will over measure especially in the last few years mm-hmm. there's been a tendency to start measuring every little thing mm-hmm. um and perceptions and you know we have a lot of cu- we uh, there's a lot of customer service surveys and things like that that are also happening and if it's something like you know i've taken some of those ones like after flying and they're sort of like how was your greeting at the at this at the gate and i'm like i don't remember it's probably okay then but, if it, but then if it's again if it's people coming in there and saying we need to have the gate be 10 percent cheerier this um you know because you're measuring yeah. that then that's going to be inherently alienating i thought there was a really interesting contrast between let's call it white collar work and blue collar work actually within within office space right because you have Peter and all of his friends who are white collar, which is theoretically a more desirable type of work in that you're, you know, in a fairly comfortable office setting. You're not really breaking your back. You're not breaking a sweat and you're collecting a pretty nice paycheck. Um, At the same time, you also have Peter's neighbor who's in construction, right? Like he's very blue collar. Um, And one of the things I I think actually was interesting is the blue collar work in this movie is portrayed as positive because they're not dealing with, quite frankly, all of the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, it is just a job. You're not expected to be happy about it. You're supposed to show up, do your job, and collect a paycheck. And that's that. Oh, man. That is such a divide. And people forget about that all the time. I, I did a, um, a lead some leadership development work at a large utility company a few years ago. And we, it was the class was maybe 80% people who worked in an office setting and 20% guys who worked out managing crews to get the utility work done. And it mm-hmm. was a world of difference because the, the guys who are out on the road, they basically, the, I, I think that they, they may, basically the deal of doing like the physical labor is that you get to say and think what you want. But when you're doing an office space, in an, an office space, did I say that? Oh, oh my God. God. Oh, my God. It's but when the title of the movie. Ah, when you're doing an office space, the, the, you don't get your work done with your hands. You get it done with words and attitudes and emotions. And so you can't just say, you know, say terrible things off the top of your head if you feel like it the way mm. you can in a more blue collar situation. And that is that difference is really large for people who try to make the transition or manage people from one to the other. And Peter really actually does make the switch 
So he's towards the end of the film, right after their their scheme has collapsed and they haven't collected enough money to run off to Mexico. He ends up working with his neighbor on a film crew, and it's the f- it's really the first time I would say in the movie where he actually seems pretty content with his work. And so I was curious as to why you guys think that is. Why why now that he's like you know, working, working at a construction site, does he find that better than where he was? I think it's kind of, it, it would be what somebody would call an honest day's labor. You don't have to pretend about who you are. I mean, all the way through it, in the office world, everybody's pretending about who they are, trying to suck up to the bobs, mm-hmm. um, trying to manipulate Lumberg, or if they're Lumberg, manipulate everybody else. And so... You know, in blue collar work, you can you're either doing the thing or you're not doing the thing, and there's not a lot you can say to to make it seem otherwise. Yeah, and I might be making like a mental leap here too, but we talked a little bit about the space at the beginning of the conversation, how gray it was and cubicles, and basically you're in a building with a bunch of strangers throughout the day who are not uh, approaching you honestly, and I think the vice versa or the the opposite of that that he's experiencing now is he's like outdoors if someone pisses you off you can kind of just walk away i feel like there's a difference there too you're not locked in a box with an annoying boss that you have to see every morning um i think part of his satisfaction comes from being able to look at something and say i did that right there's a there's a sense of completion there's a sense of progress at the end of the day mm-hmm. we were working on a client site um, for an extended period of time and at the same time that we were working with this client, there was a building going up across the street. And I remember like every day I would just go outside and I would look at that building and think like, are we going to are we going to finish? Are we going to be successful by the time this building is built? <laughs> and so it was sort of a race against a, a physical object. Yeah, it's like an artifact of impact. And also there's something um, about, you know, we're we're kind of evolved to be in time and space. And a lot of what we do that that sounds very I was like, whoa <laughs> whoa dude but what i mean is a lot of what we do i mean like what we personally do the three of us in this room is that it's very abstract and mm-hmm. so it's you know we make bullet points we make presentations we we move ideas around and it's really hard to tell if any of that is a thing or if we're just sort of deciding it's a thing um and there's something about just moving around and, and physically doing something also you know when it's over you know you know when yeah. you're done um, and that's something that, that we're, we're kind of more evolved for, and this abstraction is harder to handle, I think, because it's newer for us. What do we recommend to leaders, or what have you found really helpful in dealing with that abstraction in your career? Well, I've just done this dumb thing where I have a whiteboard wall, and I put my to-do list out on it, and when I go, instead of having it in my computer, and when I do a thing, I go over there with my marker, and I make a big cross-off mark, and... It feels so much better, and I don't get I don't get like trapped in these sort of like what was I doing now? Like I went to go get to my Trello task board, but then on the way I got distracted by a Slack message that popped up, and then I had to go schedule something, and now what was I doing again? You know, mm-hmm. but this way by going over to the board to get my next assignment and then come back, I've been getting a lot more done. <laughs> One of the things I've seen recommended to leaders is actually to get a hobby. Mm-hmm. which is something that you can fulfill outside of your work, which will lead towards completion, right? So yeah. maybe it is, maybe it's knitting or quilting, right? And then mm-hmm. after a while, you can point to a blanket that you have created for somebody. Um, or maybe it is 
uh, going to the gym and tracking your gains. So you, you, know, get, you get swole. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's actually, they. I, there was an article in Outside Magazine not too long ago that talked about why marathon running has become such a big thing. It's because all these office workers need a sense of completion. Yeah, I've seen those, and I absolutely refuse to participate in a race where I voluntarily get shocked electronically. It's just... <laughs> Yeah. It's just not my thing. The other thing I'm thinking of, and this is a bit more in the work, but we've, you know, there's a, there's a like practice called decision making uh, journaling. Like basically anytime you make a decision, you write that down, you write down why you made it, how you were feeling about it. And then you look back, you can look back three months down the road at all of your decisions and what they led to. But I think even just tracking, if you're in a very ambiguous state with a project or a process or a company, tracking what's been going on so that you can better get a sense of where you started and where you are now and what that's looked like. So our brains are not always good at uh, tracking the changes in that narrative. That's a really good one. I mean, there's a lot of research by Teresa Amabile um, out of Harvard about how really what we want out of our day is a sense of progress. We're willing to work. We're willing to take the pain of working, but we just want it to be feeling like we're moving ahead some way. So tracking progress is a great combatant for that. Yeah. You want it to be worth it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wanted to change topics now. We've, we've talked a lot about the purpose and meaning of work, and the, especially within a corporation. But I wanted to talk a little bit about consulting because I think, <laughs> I, I do think one of the really, again, things that caught on with popular culture was this idea of the bobs, right? And how kind of useless they are as consultants they're 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 just brought in people are going to put on a song and dance for them and then they're going to fire people at the end of it and so like yeah we do get people compare us to the bobs all the time uh usually if we have an interview with them one of the first things they'll do is what what would you say you do here (laughs) <laughs> yes thanks mike judge making my lives harder yeah, yeah. <laughs> darn it uh so i'm really just curious to talk with you guys about first of all what what is the role of consultants right what is, when's the right time to bring in a consultant such as us and what's the best way to utilize them in your organization well we could probably all write you a treatise on yeah. that from our <laughs> perspective so i'll just kind of dive in i you know my very first consulting good job ever I was put with a partner who was also named Kim and so we were Kim and Kim and if you we got all the Bob and Bob jokes I was like this is the female version here it's kind of terrible but um you know I think there's a perception that if the consultants come in that that means that we're cost cutting and firing people you know partly because that's a lot there are a lot of consulting companies where that is the case we are not one of them um and I'd like to I'd like to think that what we do is we help people solve problems that they either don't have the energy for or that they need a new voice for. One of the um, things that one of the main reasons people hire consultants is also to help gather data and make a case for a change that they want to make, but they have to convince other people. And so we play a political role as well. Yeah. One of the quotes that I've heard about consultants is that they steal your watch and tell you what time it is. <laughs> and... I love that. I envision myself with a, a, you know, like a whole cloak full of, of watches. Um, hey, hey, but do you know how many consultants it takes to screw in a light bulb? I, I don't. Mm. How many? What's your budget? <laughs> that is great and terrible. Um, I feel like I'm making the case against us. Um, no, but I, I think, you know, when when we work with clients, I would actually say that it's that it's rare that we uncover a problem that they 
don't know existed, right? They maybe they don't want to talk about it. Yes. But they they're usually when we present them our our findings, it's like, yeah, that that makes sense, right? We we've heard that from our people. So that's 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 not usually the the challenge. The challenge is, of course, actually making that change. And that's where I think a lot of companies struggle. Some people will come to us and say, well, couldn't I do this myself? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Could you? I could cut my own hair, too, but yeah. I don't. <laughs> you can. So you can go to the gym, right? You don't need a personal trainer. Yeah. You mm-hmm. don't, you know, need a nutritionist in order to figure out what to what to eat or, or how to cook. Uh, but having someone who has that experience, who has seen this happen, in you know dozens of companies or hundreds of teams that can give you an edge in actually making an impact and changing yeah. your organization i think yeah. that's right yeah we're, we're there to give you a little bit of extra focus and often the way that we summarize it is like there's that one thing that your team has been talking about forever that they'd like to change we can come in and help you make that change ideally yeah it's it's i think extra energy being able to be on the right track um, being able to, you know, what I, there's a term critical friend that I've heard mm. people use in terms of consultants too. basically as somebody who will help you get to your goals and will also tell you when you're full of shit. And I think that's a really valuable thing because a lot of leaders don't have that around them. There's a lot of leader uh, capacities. It's very, everything's very political and people feel like they might be getting manipulated if they are really honest. And that's something that we feel, I feel we can do for people. So that's actually a great transition to my next question, which is about transparency, right? Everyone who goes in and talks to the Bobs is being defensive and concerned about their own jobs, which, as we see in this film, is actually really critical because they are being evaluated for being let go. But Peter is the only person because he just does not care who is open and honest and is able to reflect the fact that, like, no, my job is meaningless because I have eight bosses and I don't, I'm not given any real challenges. Um, and so I, it, he gets a promotion out of this. Right? I know, it's the most <laughs> wonderful thing. It's, I remember watching this at the time before I was interested in organizational work and thinking, what are they doing? That's crazy. But now as I watched it again in preparation for this podcast, I'm like, yeah, that's spot on. Yeah. So what's the best way to encourage transparency? If you're a leader and you do want to develop those critical friends at work, what are some things that you can do to get people to actually speak their mind? Well, I, I think for one, as we saw in this movie, you can't uh, punish people for being transparent. So if they go in to talk to consultants and then they hear two days later that like half the people that talk to the consultants are getting fired, they're less likely to be transparent because there's a fear of what might happen. I think Peter is transparent because he doesn't care about his job at that point. And so he's like, well, I don't care about the potential punishment that could come at me. Um a another thing that you can do is to be transparent yourself first like set the example and open that door first on the leadership side to make people more comfortable with doing the same yeah absolutely if you can if you set the stage for it so you know we see from Lumberg that he's just not a transparent guy he's he's playing this he's locked in this role with and he has maybe five words in his vocabulary basically so you know if you it bullshit in bullshit out basically mm-hmm. is what you're gonna that's what's gonna happen so leaders when we talk a lot about psychological safety and we talk about being real and vulnerable and human and that's one of the ways that people can get off of this kind of passive aggressive defensive bullshit 
think bullshit a lot too. <laughs> say it some more. Yeah, um, thing, thing, that? Things that people are doing um, because that, that's something that people retreat to a lot in office cultures. And, if, and I think as we saw with the case of Peter, if you can get out around that and speak your mind, that's a super powerful position to be in. People will see, consider that leadership you just saying what you see that maybe everybody else doesn't um, feel yeah. like they uh, have the ability to speak up on. Yeah, that's true. It's also like, I mean, I think Peter's really likable. I like him in the movie, but he's not really like a good employee. He says himself he doesn't do that much work. Um, but it does highlight this phenomena that we see in a lot of companies where the the employees that are potentially the most negative or doing the worst work are the ones that get the most attention. Those are the ones that get the most time with leadership where people are off, often worried about how to re-engage them rather than spending time with like their star performers, the people who should be promoted. That's a great point, Jane, is that, that people do tend to draw focus. Pull, the, the poor performers tend to pull focus, mm-hmm. but you always get more out of developing your top people than you do trying to fix your least good people. Mm-hmm. You know, Jane, it's funny you bring up that point about how he's not really a great employee. I think... None of the people who work at Inatech are particularly... Yeah. <laughs> it would be hard to be a really good True. employee at Inatech. Spectacular. But I do think there's a really interesting shift in the movie where, again, Peter goes through hypnosis and he doesn't care. And suddenly he takes things into his own hands, mm-hmm. right? He does. He starts showing up late. He steals the printer. He knocks down his cubicle wall, right? He tells the truth. So obviously these are not necessarily the... Uh, ideal behaviors that we'd like to see out of an employee but i think it shows a real switch in his mindset from things happening to him Mm -hmm. in the workplace to him realizing that he is a part of the workplace and he can influence it and that's something that we actually hear from leaders all the time right it is how do i get my team to be proactive and start looking at ways that they can change as opposed to sitting back and waiting for change to happen to them yeah. And it's often part of the conversation that we have with teams as well when they they feel like there's a part of their culture that is very toxic. We often have that conversation around like, listen, you're the traffic, right? Like you are the culture and you have to also figure out how you can play a part in changing it. There, there's not really an outside entity that can change the thing that you're a part of and contributing to. Totally. You guys are both spot on with that. I mean, that's something that even in individual coaching we're trying to kind of get to, which is everybody comes in saying it's them, it's them, it's them, it's the circumstances, the circumstances. And then at a certain point, if you're lucky, everybody goes, wait a second, there's something I can actually do about this. Mm-hmm. So that's really what you can hope for. I was just reading a, a headline, because who reads articles these days, in which 70% of Americans have said they want to see like an aggressive energy policy to move towards sustainability. But then when asked if they would want to buy an electric car, only like 36% said that they would be willing to consider that. And so I think when you're when you're talking, when you're complaining, quite frankly, about your own <laughs> workplace or like how terrible your boss is, I think that is a look. We're not saying that you don't have a terrible boss. We're not saying that things, other things, don't need to change, but the change really does start with you. It is thinking about how you want to do things differently, and how you can create impact in your own environment. Yeah, and once you do it, then you kind of empower other people to do it by example. It's like breaking the four-minute barrier. First person to do, to do mm. it, it's really hard, and then the next few people, it's a little bit it's easier. It's possible. So yeah. more, more people jump on. Yeah. Okay, so second to last question is, have you guys ever been in a situation like office space, right? Have you, or, or a tchotchkes, 
where you've just been in this soulless environment uh, full of passive aggression. And, and what did you do? Oh, man, I had a very short. Okay, so so right before I was starting grad school, I needed to raise some cash quickly, but I only had like a month before I was going to be in school. So I did some temping. And I first had the most amazing job in the world at a management consulting company just doing like being the receptionist for a week. And it made me want to go into management consulting because mm. it was so cool. Um, and then that was two weeks. And then the next two weeks were the completely opposite situation where I was like the person handling complaints for like the Transamerica pyramid building. And so everybody I talked to all day, I mean, first of all, I had no idea what I was doing or how to handle this. It was basically like, take the complaint and put it over here. (laughs) (laughs) And so all I had were people absolutely raging against the machine and talking about all the bad things that were happening to them. And it was a situation where there were no right answers and I didn't have the covers on the TPS reports and it was a soulless cubicle in in said Transamerica pyramid. And it was probably the worst two weeks I've ever had on a job. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Good times. What about you, Jane? (laughs) Uh, My first job in HR was, we talked about this in the Devil Wears Prada podcast too. Um, she was not the best boss, but just aside from that, it was a cubicle setting. People were very scared of HR because of her approach. She was very like employer first, the employees are out to get us, like they're going to sue us, like a lot of uh, kind of unfounded fears. Well, so- I don't, if, if you don't know Jane personally, Jane is really a terrifying figure. So <laughs> oh, yeah, I yeah. get it. Yeah. It's like, am, it's like sitting here with Godzilla. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I I like people. I want people to like me being in a department where people like actively avoid you and the department was definitely like definition of soulless for me. And it also, I think, made me passionate about the rebrand of HR and really rethinking how HR can support that like culture strategy combo that we try to help our uh, the businesses that we consult with really get to and how HR plays a part there. I had two jobs that come to mind. I'm sure I've had more, but these two in particular. Um, I worked in insurance claims. So like literally what I would do is open up envelopes and like sort out the paperwork into different piles. And I did that for eight hours a day. And the only thing that really made it bearable was the fact that you were allowed to actually listen to your radio at mm. a reasonable level. Um, no, I, had, I, actually, I actually had headphones. Um, and I remember at the end of it, this was this was before I went off to college and my boss came to me and was like, are you sure you want to go to college? Because we could we could really use a person like you around here. And I was like, oh, man. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. This is exactly why I want to go to college. <laughs> and then but then my first job out of college when I um, I worked at an agency, um, we actually there, there's all sorts of stories I could tell from there. But there there really was. Uh, a storage B that I got moved into and so we I, I actually did put up a sign that said storage B and I, I had little printouts of cockroaches and I and I put them up there um, and everybody on my team really appreciated it management did not say anything so I'm sure they appreciated it as well all right so guys uh, we always we always like to end on this we've been brought in as consultants to Inadhek slash Tchotchkes, they're doing a regional special, and that's why we're <laughs> consulting with both. Um, and so I, w- I would ask, like, what? how would we advise the management at these companies? What's something that you would do to make 
life more meaningful for their employees. Well, it's not ping pong tables, I just want to say. What? The answer is not more ping pong tables. Okay, but what if I had beer kegs? (laughs) Then what would you say? Kombucha on tap. Kombucha on tap. That'll solve all the problems. (laughs) All right. Great. This is the easiest problem we've ever solved. Um, I guess the first thing that comes up for me is that there's like a real divide between leadership and staff in both of those companies, like a true divide. I don't think there's, it's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You, re- you don't really know what's going on in the leadership on, what was it, Inatech? You don't really know why they need to come in on the weekends to work. Um, what are they trying to accomplish besides changing the the number of numerals in the year from four to two or two to four? Um, but I feel like kind of combining that divide a little bit so that there's more transparency on what's going on in leadership, what they want to accomplish, and what they want the employees to do to get there and how they can kind of all work towards getting there together. Yeah, our our founder, Bud, actually did work in a tchotchkes for some, <laughs> for some time. No, it was, um, it was for a project that we did with a client. And as part of this, he went undercover as a trainee in – uh, in an equivalent to Chashkis, right? In a in a food establishment. This could be our next podcast, Undercover Consultant. I know, right? Um, and what he found was that the employees actually had really great ideas, right? They were the ones who were on the front line and they were the ones who were working with customers on a day-to-day basis. And so my advice would be actually to listen to your employees, like get them to identify potential changes and potential solutions, give them more power to actually design how they work. I think that would be really critical in giving them a sense of of purpose and enjoyment at their place of employment. Yeah, I think that's the, the answer overall, which is, you know, one of the things that we do is we help bring teams together to and empower them to go solve a problem test out some things see what um, makes get some learnings about what works by testing and take it from there and we find that that empowerment turns around a lot of other related attitudes because it's time to think about it like a manager in a sense this is now your problem and you you are free to solve it yeah my I would also say uh, get Lumberg some coaching. I don't think there's anyone that likes working with him. I'm sure he needs he needs a little advice. What would you coach him on? Uh, I mean, so many things. I think just his approach. I, I think we talked about it quite a bit. The, the way that he talks to his employees is like there's two layers of information happening. So really helping him be a little bit more communicative and honest about how he's what he wants people to do. Nice. All right. Well, with that, I want to thank you so much for listening to Work of Fiction. Uh, Make sure you leave a review, subscribe, tell all of your friends. And of course, let us know what you think you should that we should review next. You can find us at workoffiction.fm. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Yeah.